Hi, it's Jesse. Today on the show, journalist, producer, and activist Soledad O'Brien. My mom and dad got married in 1958. Interracial marriage was illegal in Maryland, where they lived. Right. And it wasn't until my little brother, sixth yeah. kid, was born that the Supreme Court would overturn the ban on interracial marriage. And, you know, I just think for young people, I think they think of that as long ago. And I'm like, when I was born, my parents' marriage was illegal. This is Dinners on Me, and I'm your host, Jesse Tyler Ferguson. It's always interesting to meet someone I recognize from TV who's there covering, like, the most important moments of our lives. There's this familiar feeling with them, but I also don't know them. I guess people might feel that same way about actors, but we're not being ourselves. We're characters. And Soledad O'Brien is very much herself, both in person and when she's working. She's unabashedly opinionated, she's smart, and she's incredibly witty. I mean, she's the only person so far on the show that I actually don't know personally, which can be intimidating, but also exciting for me because I respect her so much and I have so many questions about her impressive career spanning multiple TV networks. It was fascinating, but also encouraging to see someone who has continued to evolve in their field. She's wearing so many hats. She's still reporting and hosting, but she's also producing important documentaries with her own production company. It's, it's funny to do interviews with someone who's known for interviewing other people. She made me feel so comfortable, and I don't know, I'm so glad I can call her a friend now. We met up in Harlem at the diner Harlem Shake just moments before a thunderstorm. She's a recent Harlem resident, and I thought, why not grab some burgers and shakes? The walls here are covered by all these notable diners who have been there, and they were gracious enough to ask us to sign headshots to add to the wall. All right, let's get to the conversation. I'm so glad you're doing this with me. I am so happy, and I love anything that's like geographically desirable. I know, right? <laughs> oh, I just have to take a shower and walk down the street. <laughs> I do that. Okay, so you've lived in Harlem how long? Oh, gosh, hardly at all. Not even two years. We okay. moved in November 15th of 2021. Okay. But we have loved it here and uh, and left and left Chelsea. And it's been really, it's been great. I love it. How old are your kids now? Old. My boys, I have twin boys. They're the youngest. They're 19. Are they off at college? Or? No, not yet. They, we, they redid ninth grade because of course, COVID, they learned right. nothing the first go round. So <laughs> put them in again. And they actually really needed it. Boys, this is said with tremendous respect. Boys are like- I have two slow boys. Slow on things. Girls are like- <laughs> Boys are just like, they need more cooking. You know, you're like, maybe we shouldn't hit your brother over the head. No, maybe we shouldn't drive that, you know, that truck yeah. into the wall. Yeah. Girls are always jumping ahead, trying to figure things out. So I think they, they really, um, they loved, they were, they were going to high school. So they got to restart. They did ninth grade and middle school. And then they had the option in high school to do ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th. Okay. So they basically just started up with their class. Right. So they're 19. And then my two daughters are 21 and 22, about to be 23. Are your two twins the only ones that are living with, they're the only they, well, living with you? Well, you know, they, they, they all, they never leave. <laughs> it's a whole other podcast. They never really leave. I mean, especially if you live in New York City, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. this year, Cecilia was doing a little traveling in Europe and I had four of her friends just staying in our apartment. Yeah. And my niece just got a new job. So she was staying in our apartment. Right. So we had just tons of people living with us, yeah. which was great, which was really, really fun. And then we wanted to host nonprofit events. 
So I run a little tiny foundation. We have a lot of friends. We do a really fun um, speed dating event with CEOs of color. Oh, who just all come over to my house and they do speed dating with these other young women kind of in the neighborhood or all over in Manhattan. It's really great. That's fascinating. And so I kind of <laughs> love the idea of like not having to do it in Midtown at, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. at JPMorgan Chase, but sure. to be able to be like in a house in Harlem in yeah. their neighborhood. It's really fun. So we've started hosting events. And then I told people like if you have a nonprofit event that is smallish, yeah, come on you know, over. Come on over. We'll host yeah. it here. You have an event space. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, we do. It's really <laughs> kind of fun. Did you, are you hungry? I would like a drink. I'm thirsty. Thirsty. Hi. You know, I've never eaten here and I've walked past it 50 million times. What? I know, I'm so oh, excited. I thought you had eaten here before. Never, I have never eaten oh here. Oh my gosh. Isn't that you funny? Have to have the full I will. I need a cocktail for sure, okay. or at least a glass of wine. And then what is the what is the thing everybody orders at Harlem Shake? If you're looking for something kind of special, we have our fantastic froze. Oh. Nothing like it. You know what? Um, I actually, I was, I came in so gung ho on having a cocktail, but I don't think you can do a milkshake at a. Co- I think that's that that turns into there. A is, there are no rules. You were the first person who has made that rule. That I don't know. I feel like that's a good. You know, they what do they say? Beer, not wine. Whatever oh, yeah, the order. Beer like, before it, liquor. <laughs> <laughs> so it's in we, that vein. I, I probably should have a frosé thing. So. And then I'm gonna have the chicken sa- sandwich. Okay, fantastic. I'm gonna do the Harlem classic. Okay, with beef or impossible. Beef. Yeah. And do you want everything on it? I'm going to take everything on it, yeah. Okay. Can we do the curly fries with chipotle yeah, mayo? Yeah, for sure. Do you want are you a good food sharer or not? Oh, yeah. Oh, you are? Okay, yeah. me too. Sure. Okay, yeah. so curly fries. And Unless I will, it's dessert. I will try the Harlem Shake. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Appreciate it. I have been such a fan of yours for so long. Oh, thank you. Um, and it's so surreal sitting in front of someone that I've watched, like, <laughs> deliver so much, you know, news and content to me. So that that's really cool for me. Um, and I know that you've been very outspoken on specifically social media, which I love so much. And It's a crazy know, time, though, It is a crazy right? time, and I feel like it's, 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 and it's a, a time to... And a bit of a to, depressing time, really. Sure, but it's also a time to speak up, and I oh, think, gosh, you know... Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, uh, isn't that, for me, how old are you? I'm, I'll be 48 soon. So I'm going to be 57 next, oh, next week, two weeks. Oh, happy and, birthday. Thank you. And, and I love my birthday. Are you a Libra? Uh, uh, Virgo. Oh, Virgo, okay. Tightly wound, okay. highly neurotic. One thing I love about getting older is that, like, that anxiety around speaking up. Like, is this the moment? Should right. I? I don't know. I'm so young. I don't know everybody. What if I'm, ju- what if, I, you know, it just. Burning bridges, it making just people mad at you. It going away, right? It just, it just doesn't matter as much. And it's so freeing. It's been really fun, actually. Do I you think. think it's age that does it? Or do you think it's also experience and, and stability in your own career that allows you to do that? I a think bit it's of a, a, probably a little bit of everything. Years ago, I remember, um, I used to be very frustrated chronically with Meet the Press because the host of Meet the Press at the time never asked a follow-up. I mean, it became a punchline joke. He just would never ask yeah. a follow-up. Literally, yeah. someone could admit to like killing another human being and he would just move on <laughs> to the next on. question. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I used to, you know, tweet about it like, I can't believe in this interview he could have done this and this. Yeah. And a friend of mine said, you know, you are so right. But you know what? I really enjoy being on Meet the Press. So I'm just not going to say anything. Mm. And I remember thinking, this is probably early... 2015, 2016, because it, it really coincided with a lot of the egregious media behavior around the Trump coverage. Right. And I just remember thinking like, wow, I have so much clarity that I have zero interest in being on Meet the Press or anything else. Right. If it means like just ditching 
these values that I have. Like yeah. it was so clear, and I always love a clear thing. Yeah. Like I just thought, wow, that is so sad. And he said it very clear. I like to be on Meet the Press. I just don't want to risk. I would never say anything bad about that show because I don't so want to risk not risk being on. Being invited back. You know, not boy, you're wrong. The show is great, or boy, you're wrong. I think that was a good question. Right. Just do you realize what you're risking? By saying yeah, something. And yeah. it was so nice to really not give up flying right. about it. You know, I, I know that part of the job description is that you are meant to be uh, very neutral uh, and you're meant to help inform the public, but without too much opinion one way or the other. But I, you know, we're also all humans who have feelings about these things. I mean, I, wa- I remember watching Anderson argue about marriage equality with right. people, and it's like he has such an invested right. interest. And, and, and do in you that. really want Anderson Cooper to pretend like, oh, I, I have no dog exactly. in the fight? I always have such a struggle around this idea of objectivity. But I think there's some topics where we like to pretend like uh, we're not sure, and. And I, I think that's false because I don't think reporters really feel that way. I think they're actually just not telling you. Mm-hmm. I would much rather have someone say to me, here's how I feel, but at this end of this interview, it really changed. Or I'm going to push back hard because that was not my experience. Right. A lot of that for me comes around reporting on policing. This idea of like, well, you got to be objective about policing while at the same time. And I was one of the reporters who used to say, oh, the police have released a statement on the uh, shooting. Hang on, let me type this word for word what they mm-hmm. said, yeah. put that in my script. Yeah. Police say a man approximately five foot 11, yeah. you know, a black man between the ages of 30 and 35 was found, black. Right. I, I, yeah. I don't know. We never yeah. acted as if they had a vested interest in the story. Mm-hmm. In fact, they were part of the story, right? right? It was always the voice of God telling you. Right. And then you would learn later that some of that was Wasn't. not only just a wrong, but it was intentionally wrong at right. times, right? How something went down was absolute right. bullshit at times. Yeah. And so I think we've been slow to this idea of like, well, we want to be objective, but we're going to quote the police, you know, or shouldn't they just be a party to the conversation? Shouldn't mm-hmm. they just be a piece of, right. here's what they say, here's what this lady across the street says, right. here's what this person says. I think it's changing, but I, I think this, this idea of, I don't want Anderson Cooper to pretend like he doesn't give a shit about marriage equality right, when he right. does. I, it, when he got so much slack, I don't know if you remember this, I think it was when he was covering the hurricanes, uh, which you were also right. there as well, um, and you're showing emotion and like God. People loved him for that. And he was, people were dead. And I remember we would step over dead bodies. It was yeah. the craziest thing. And yeah. you're like, this is New Orleans. This yeah. is like major city. And there's a guy who's been dead on the street that suddenly someone finally has covered him up with tarp. Yeah. But he was there two days ago, and I'm back right. again doing my live shot. Someone should be outraged about that. Right. That's not normal there. Right, right. How is it, Frosé? Oh, my God. This is the greatest <laughs> thing ever. Who's been we keeping a, this from me? I, I mean, honestly, all of America has been drinking this Really? But I didn't so realize long. it was so sweet and like... Um, it's delicious. I thought it was just really cold... You know, my mother-in-law puts Rose. ice cubes in her white yeah, yeah, wine. Yeah, 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 my mom too, yeah. I thought it was that, like yeah. someone's like crunching up ice cubes. No, it's like, it's this a delicious, amazing, like a slushy margarita, margarita rosé. Mm, I love it. I love it, you love it. Uh, by um, the way, I... Cheers. Cheers to you. I might have to have a sip of that. Um, please. This milkshake is so intense. It has red velvet crumbs all over the top is of it. Is it good? It's delicious. Ooh, it's very good. I just got a headache. Brain freeze. Oh we God. both have brain freeze. I sucked it down too fast. <laughs> and first of all, I feel like things have shifted. I feel like news reporters are yes. a little bit more, I guess, brave about 
calling out things when they're just not true. I mean, obviously we've been faced with so many lies in the media in the past, you know, uh, five, six years, like more so than ever. But, you know, I also come from a time when, um, and you as well, like when, you know, there was three networks Mm. that showed the the evening news and like I would be in my bedroom and I'd hear bomb, 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 bomb. And I knew my parents were watching the evening news. And it was something that they sat in front of for like an hour, an hour and a half, and then it was over for the day. For the day. Right. Now it never ends. And now it just never ends. And we're on this constant stream. You know, to not have context behind that as well is actually super dangerous. You know, you can't just have this nonstop stream of information without context and without faces and feelings and stories behind them. And that's why I think so so many of the stories that that you have done are so wonderful because they are important stories, but we're talking about the people who are behind these stories. And we I do a show called Matter of Fact, which is a syndicated show that we co-produce with Hearst TV. It's in local markets all over the country. And one thing I liked about that show when they first proposed it was this idea of we're going to talk about how policy lands on people. We're not going to have feuding congressmen we're going to cut out the middleman. So if you want to talk about homeless moms, let's go find some. Yeah. And we'll sit down with them and we'll talk to them. And they don't have to agree, but we're going to actually understand what's happening to them by going right to the mm-hmm. horse's mouth, so to speak. Because I do think in an environment where the news never ends and where people like to do these fact checks, but they've also just elevated a person. They'll be like, fact check, not true. And you're like, yeah. right, well, then why did you give him six and a half minutes? Right. You literally just platformed a right, person. That, that the harm is already done. And by the way... With social media, their show, which will get 250,000 viewers, that's actually going to be all chopped up and edited for social media, which is going to get far more eyeballs and drive more traffic. And no one's going to care about the fact check. So I think sometimes we haven't kept up with how the medium is really being used and exploited. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a mistake to platform people. You know, people would say to me, well, you wouldn't let Donald Trump talk. And I'm like, well, you don't have to give someone a microphone if they're consistently make stuff up. You, right. There's no rule that says, oh, yep, page 17. <laughs> Got to right. give them a live mic. Mm-hmm. If we have a goal of informing our viewers, we kind of owe it to them to not have to go back later and say, but sir, that's wrong. That's right. a lie. That didn't happen. We have to come up with a better strategy for helping people because I think a lot of people are just confused. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, again, you elevate a lot of things and then you like to point out that it's not really true. And Social media has really done that, I think, very well, right? Yeah, we we say something and it's like, you know, she was abducted by aliens, you know. No one thinks it's accurate, but this woman claims blah, blah, blah. You're like, great, well, it, it's just Why not. Why are we talking about we, that, right? We don't put flat earthers on every time we do a story about NASA. Right. Like, let's check in yeah. with Steve. He's a flat earther. Steve, <laughs> NASA says they're going to explore the moon. They just named a bunch of astronauts, too. Do you have anything you want to add? Because yeah. we, we want to get balance. You don't. You say these people are experts. We're going to talk to experts. Yeah. And anybody who's going to come to us, if we want to do a story on flat earthers, we're going to make it really clear and we're going to think very carefully about the way in which we elevate what they're saying. Right. So that people get what we're trying to do. There's context behind it. Absolutely. Right, right. Now for a quick break, but don't go away. When we come back, we'll get into the state of the Republican Party, her parents' interracial marriage and amazing love story, and the misunderstood history of Rosa Parks. Okay, be right back. And we're back with more Dinners on Me. I mean, I'm just a big fan of transparency and not 
creating narratives that sound good and heroic but aren't actually accurate. Mm -hmm. So Rosa Parks would constantly tell journalists who would say, you know, Rosa Parks was tired, you know, it was the end of a day and Rosa Parks was tired. And she'd be like, oh, no, no, I was no more tired than I was any other day. I was Uh tired of being pushed around, Mm -hmm. which is a very different kind of tired, Mm -hmm. right? She's like, I'm tired of racism. I wasn't tired for my seamstress job. And she would say it all the time, and reporters would kind of ignore it because they liked this other narrative of just this lone elderly lady, she was 40, uh, elderly lady (laughs) one day at the end of her job just couldn't get up, and she's like, it's just not true. It's kind of funny how many times she tried to set the record straight and try to shift the narrative back to there was this very strategic, intentional fight to be sick and over racism and they were going to fight it. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't one day she, this one person did it. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to just constantly reframe the narrative with like, this didn't used to be this way and this yeah. is what happened. This is how it happened. I mean, you were born into a, a family. Uh, your, your parents, when, when you were born, it was illegal for them to be married. People um, don't ever, like college students, when I tell them that, yeah. that my mom and dad got married in 1958 interracial marriage was illegal in Maryland where they lived. Right. They drove to D.C. and got hitched and drove back to Baltimore and lived illegally. And it wasn't until my little brother so that was a six, I was number five, six yeah. kid was born that the Supreme Court would overturn the ban on interracial marriage. And, you know, I just think for young people, I think they think of that as long ago. And I'm like, when I was born my parents' marriage was illegal. My parents could not buy a house in Long Island without sort of extraordinary measures because people would not sell to them. Right. When you were young, did you sense that there was any time that they were hiding who they really were from anyone? No, I don't think I ever felt that way, although it's always hard because you're not, you don't have anything really to compare to. There's no context. I mean, sure, as kids, you don't really look at it that way. I think my parents were very happy with, you know, my dad was Australian. Mm -hmm. All my relatives were in Australia. My mom was Cuban. All my relatives were in Cuba. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have, like most of my friends had relatives around and stories and we had us. We just had us. Oh, the food is coming. Oh boy. Yum, thank you. We have a side of ranch and chipotle mayo. Mmm, that looks so good. Thanks. This one's mine, right? Yeah, that's you. This is me. This looks gorgeous. This looks so good. I'm gonna have to take a picture of these two (laughs) things together. So I think they both wanted to protect us and wanted to inform us, mm-hmm. right? It's a weird thing. You don't want to make your kids miserable about like America's amazing right. and life is great and you have you're you're poised to have a zillion great opportunities. So, yeah. but you also want to be realistic right. about what life is going to be like. And I think that sometimes is a hard, you know, road to hoe, as they say. Right? How do you? tell them like this is how it is but not depress them and make them sad and unhappy right I think that's the challenge I mean I guess I'm selfishly sort of I'm interested in this conversation for myself too I mean I'm a part of a a same-sex couple and I have two kids Uh, my oldest son is three now Mm. my younger one's only 10 months but like you know when Justin and I first got married marriage equality was not legal across all 50 states. We were still fighting state by state by state. Proposition 8 had just been overturned. You know, so, like, we were living in a time when, like, people were married and then, like, that was reversed. So, you know, we always think about, like, how are we going to discuss 
our lives and our love story with our children when it's time for that to right. happen. And do you make a big deal of it? Like some people couldn't get married. Right, right. Or do you say, isn't it great? People now can get married. And how do you frame for them so that they are both optimistic mm-hmm. and, um, you know, forward-looking kids, especially, I think, for children, mm-hmm. but don't let them forget. Like, actually, there was a big fight over it. A lot of people risked a lot a of big stuff. Deal. It didn't just happen. People didn't one day say, you know what? Oh, my God. We right. should totally give gay people the right to get married. Right. It was a fight. If you look at now the abortion rights discussion, argument, slash, fight, right? Like, I think a lot of people just kind of took for granted. Like, it's always been this way. Having access to birth control. Well, you know, guess what? That's not always necessarily an indication that's going to stay. And if you don't speak up about it, you don't fight for it, you might find yourself not realizing how much work it took to get there. Sure, sure. I was so moved by your parents' love story. I love being married. Uh Like, I, Justin is a great husband. I love being married to him. We've been married, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary. Oh my gosh, that's so nice. And I saw that your parents were married for almost 60 years, was it? Um, But what really moved me is- Death before divorce. I know. That's what they used to say. That's a charming little family phrase, death before divorce. (laughs) Yeah, put that on a pillow. Um, (laughs) Justin and I have this piece of art in our bedroom called The Lovers, and it's matching heartbeats, mm-hmm. and um, and then at the end, they both flatline at the same Aww. time, and when I heard that your your parents died within 40 days of one another... I know, that was crazy. It actually, I mean, I, I, I'm, first of all, I'm so sorry, that must have been a really difficult time, but there's also something... It is, it's lovely. They live so for moving each other. to me it about is, that. It's so true. They really did, and my mom was, she had dementia, so it was a very weird, you know, she was... Right. <laughs> She used to call me. My dad died first. Yeah. And she would call me and say in the middle of the night, lovey, lovey. I'd say, oh, my God, Mom, everything okay? Lovey, did you hear? Your father died. (laughs) I was like, yes. (laughs) I was there at the funeral, remember? So it was was just messy. Like, it was just, there's so much in dementia that's so sad and and also just so hilariously, like, absurd because it's crazy. Um, But, yeah, they just really live for each other. I spent a lot of my time with my dad because he was healthier than my mom at the end. Um, uh, to like, Mom, Dad, you should go out. I would take him to theater. I would take him like, you live in New York City. We can do these things. Yeah. You can get around. You can. And my mom was in a wheelchair and she couldn't move by then. And and she was in and out of it. You know, just dementia's horrible. And you know, and and he just wouldn't want to leave anywhere. And I was mm-hmm. just like, I used to tell my husband to this day, like, keep living. Yeah. Even if I'm sitting there telling you, please don't leave me, and she would say, Ted, please don't leave me. I'd be like, Mom, we're just going to get some dinner. Yeah. Oh, please, Ted, please don't leave me. Please don't leave Aww. me. Oh, it was such a heartbreak. Right when he died, because I literally like sat in bed with them, and uh, my dad said, Estella, I just don't think I can do it anymore. I don't think I can make it anymore. Like, he mm. lived, was literally trying to stay alive because he, he took care yeah. of her, you know? Yeah. It was really was a great love story. They had a very respectful sense of each other. Like, they didn't speak badly of each other. I think if I had to look back, like, what, what made it all work was... They just liked each other and then they respected each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I know so many couples who are just like snitty or bitchy yeah. to each other or someone's the butt of the joke or they, they love the cutting remark. They like embarrassing yeah. the person. And my parents were nothing like that. My mother used to say all the time, I love your father the most and then all the rest of you equally, <laughs> which I think was a lie. I think, she, <laughs> I think my brothers were at the top of the kid list. Um, but, you know, like I think they had very clear sense of yeah. themselves as a couple yeah. and that a very strong couple would raise healthy kids. And also, like, to, you know, start their relationship in a time where, like, 
they sort of had to fight for themselves right. as they, well. They were it. I mean, I, that's something I certainly relate to as being a, you know, someone, uh, half, half of a gay couple and having to like fight for the right to get married. And, um, you know, because that word meant something to me. It wasn't enough for me to be domestic partners with him. Right. I, I right. wanted to be married because that's like a universal term. Everyone knows what it is to be married. And um, so to, to, I find it so funny, too, that people protect this idea of marriage, right? right. And you're like, Let's take a moment and go through the statistics. Just right. Like, what, what do we protect? Like, it, right. It's such a weird, you would think that. Or that a straight couple can get married after meeting each other for five minutes in Vegas. But Absolutely. Like, it and yeah. also get divorced or annulled within the next 48 hours. Exactly. <laughs> Not yeah. Like, yeah. And here we are fighting just that to get like married. This, you know, and it's it, marriage. It's yeah. very, yeah. you know, and you're like, eh, I don't know. Yeah. That's the kind of, again, it's, it's, it's just sometimes these fights aren't what people claim they're about mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah. Um, you know, I spoke. I told you a little bit. I, I'm friendly with Anderson, and I remember watching him. I think it was like maybe when he was covering the crisis in um, Syria, and I remember watching him on TV and just watching where he was, watching all this stuff happening around him in live live time, and just being so intensely scared for him. Oh. Talk to me a little bit about because you've covered quite a few really. Significant it's so funny. In, in the history. middle, you're not afraid. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about um, the earthquake in Haiti. No, so, uh, everything but, was like, like uh, no, it's when so weird. When you were weird. like literally in aftershocks. It's ter- it's so weird because uh, for me, I was never afraid of stuff. Mm. I do a lot of horseback riding. Yeah. Went to our show today. I wasn't feeling it. I kind of chickened out. Yeah. yeah. Didn't want to do it. I'm so like afraid all the time. I have to be talked into jumping and things like that. Yeah. And... I've been on shoots where people are shooting at me. We did a shoot, it was a story uh, in Chile during an earthquake where they were looting everything. My Spanish is more like Spanglish, so I'm running after people, trying to mm-hmm. ask them questions in my Spanglish. And they would turn around and say something in Spanish. And I was like, yeah. turn to my producer, Rose, like, I, what did he say? She says, he says, if you keep asking him questions, he's going to kill you. Oh my <laughs> I'm God. Like, oh, Gracias, <laughs> lo siento. <laughs> but you know, like it wasn't. I was never afraid for some reason. Like that. It, th- tell me, I have to go over or jump on a horse that's right. this low. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. So I don't know. I really felt like I never went into dangerous places. Occasionally, yes, something terrible will happen. But but really, I don't go into war zones. I really didn't. Right. It just wasn't what my right. kind of reporting. Um, so I never felt like I was doing anything dangerous. I loved traveling. Mm. I loved working, partly because it was really. You could just be sleep on the plane, be alone, and I had yeah. four little kids, and I just was felt like I never had any alone time. Which is, I remember going to uh, must have been Thailand to cover the tsunami, and we were on Singapore Air, which is the greatest airline ever, and the people are so nice, and you're just like, this is amazing. I'm <laughs> off to cover a disaster, but like, yeah. I'm just like, I'm gonna sleep for eight hours, yeah, you get and a I'm gonna bit of moment to yourself. So Absolutely. you know, part of it was that I, I love to work and I love to travel, and I never. I, I like to pick stories by, do I think I can add something if I'm there? Like, is it worth traveling? Is it worth missing a lot of stuff? Mm-hmm. And I think for stories, especially when race or class was involved, mm-hmm. I had done a lot of that work. Like, I was like, yeah, I think I can bring something to this. Yeah. I remember covering a story, we were covering a, like a 10th anniversary of the killing of John Benet Ramsey and just sitting there thinking, it was actually a, a moment of clarity for me of like, I'm in a line with 50 other people. I do not need to be here. Right. I literally, there's no reason for me to be here. I'm adding right. nothing. I'm not, I'm not reporting. None of us are reporting because, of course, the story's not being reported. Right. We're just standing here doing 
you know, rolling live shots. Right. And I, I really always felt like I was happy to travel if I could bring something else right. to the story. When you spoke in your book, um, you're, you have like a, a beautiful memoir, I guess you call it. Um, but when you spoke about you, you having to fight to go to Haiti. Oh my um, God, that was crazy. And you know, you were at CNN and Anderson's being shipped off and everybody you know, everyone was being else shipped off. I was so mad. You're begging to go. Um, and, and how you had to sort of like elbow your way in. My daughter used to say, in. oh my God, someone should better send mommy to Haiti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get mom to Haiti. Get mom to Haiti. And you know, because that's, I mean, that was a thing that, and I loved working at CNN. Uh, back then, I think we did a lot more like that kind of international crisis coverage, which mm-hmm. much more we did Katrina, we did yeah. Haiti, we did it's just a, a t- what was happening in the tsunami, right? Like mm-hmm. back to the Tokyo tsunami as well. You do so many stories that I think like all the anchors would travel for and make them relevant to like an audience in America today. Um, but yeah, I think I always felt like I can add something to this story. I, yeah. I think it's a story about a lot of orphans. It's a story about motherhood. It's yeah. a story about people of color. It's a story about the history of black people who fought to be free and wouldn't be recognized by the very same people that we all love in Hamilton, yeah. the musical. <laughs> like, yeah. Those very people were like, no to the Haitians. Yeah. So, you know, I, I always feel if there's something that I can add, then I should go. Yeah. I, Wolf Blitzer asked me when I was covering the story in Haiti, he's like, what is it like as a mom? Oh mm-hmm. my God, my mother hit the roof. She was so mad at him. My mother loved Wolf, Wolf Blitzer, but she was just like, how dare he? You are there. And I did. I said, I'm, well, as a reporter, Wolf. Yeah. I mean, it was such a weird, like, I don't know. I, I'm not right. separate from being What do you think mom. he meant by that? I think he was trying to get me, uh, as an anchor woman who many a time has asked an awkwardly worded question of people trying to get an answer that I'm right. thinking they can deliver on, probably wanted me to talk a little bit about the kids and all these young Haiti is a very, very young country, and you yeah. just saw so many of these like children who were orphans or dying or abandoned. So I think he was trying to connect the dots on mm-hmm. what it's like to see babies in right. like, terrible, terrible conditions would be my my guess. Right, but, right. Boy, my mom was not having it. <laughs> I love that mom was looking out for you. Mm. I would love your take on this. You know, my parents were both Republicans growing up. My mom, I Where'd think, just up? in Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> And my dad has always mourned, like, he's like, I don't recognize myself in the Republican Party now. My mom actually might be switching parties, which is interesting. Wow. You know, and we are, here we are, like, our, our former president has been indicted now four times, and it's like, yet he's still the leading candidate, is probably going to win, you know, the opportunity to run again. I mean, what do you think that says about where we're at? And also, the, what's the state of the Republican Party, do you think, in this moment? I think the Lincoln Project, which does a lot of, they're all sort of Republicans who are not Trump Republicans, do a pretty good job of kind of talking about where the Republican Party is. And I, I think that it's just a bit of a mess because it it's not based in a value, right? I mean, there was a time when mm-hmm. you'd be like, Republicans stand for limited government and, you know, make sure you're controlling spending and you want to make sure there's this and this and this and, and Democrats stand for this and this and this. Mm-hmm. And I think those days are long gone. Mm-hmm. And I think people have recognized that the way to motivate a voter is with a lot of hate and a lot of racism. It moves people. You know, we in the newsroom like to talk about it's a culture war. And I'm always like, I don't think, you know, we're talking about should people exist? Should their rights be recognized? Mm -hmm. Like, that's not a culture war. That makes it sound almost silly. Uh, You know, should you be able to uh, be a bigot? 
you know, these are not culture mm-hmm. war issues, but I, I think what we've seen politicians do of late, uh, DeSantis, uh, I live in Florida in the, in the cold months, and uh-huh. so, you know, he's my governor during half the year. I think he's really learned the lesson of, like, trying to mobilize that angry, rabid, kind of mm-hmm. racist rhetoric it can be very challenging when it hits reality. Mm-hmm. You can have a very strong anti-immigrant stance because you think that's going to really work with those angry voters. But in the state of Florida, you actually need immigrants. And right. you saw this backpedaling by folks saying, no, no, he doesn't really mean it. There's just no sense, I think, for standing for certain values that used to be very clear delineations mm-hmm. between the parties. Right. Are your kids um, excited to vote this year? <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, the kids nowadays are so smart. Yeah. I really, I mean, if there's anything that's depressing you around elections, just go talk to an 18-year-old because <laughs> they're just so smart. And I think TikTok and as much as I'm not the biggest fan of social media, it's really helped them understand issues. Mm-hmm. They're so much more knowledgeable than I was when I was their age. Right. They just, you know, they really understand politics in a way that I didn't. So yeah, I think they're really ready. Well, information's to... coming to them in such a different way. I kind of wonder like what would have it would have been like if you had social media when you first started. Oh your my god, career, that would have been mean... a disaster. <laughs> think of all the terrible things you did that no one ever saw, no one watched, no one caught. I know. I was like the one for me is always YouTube. I'm like if YouTube had run around, like the amount of things I would have recorded myself doing. Oh my god. And then like, you'd have to spend your life trying to kill it off. Absolutely productions of Phantom of the Opera in my backyard oh, right. that I would have recorded myself doing. They all would have lived forever online. Yeah, so social good. media is great, but they're so knowledgeable. I mean, every so often I'll watch my kids are on TikTok all the time. I'll yeah. be like, what are you doing? And my son will say, it's a really interesting doc- short documentary about, you know, how Yugoslavia split. I'm like, On really? TikTok? Like, uh, yes, they're re- all, it, it, I know, I would not have guessed it. And we, at first we're like, are they bullshitting us or is this yeah. really? Yeah. They actually get a ton of information off of TikTok, off of YouTube. Yes. Um, so... I don't know. I, 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 I think they're well-educated, and I think they understand. I think they have more compassion for people mm-hmm. than probably I had when I was younger. I think they really um, they study it, certainly. You know, like underpinnings of homelessness. We never did that. We never, we didn't, our social studies was not sort of focused on, like, current day American problems. Right. I, I, I remind, remember it just being very much like, you know, the Great Migration yeah. You know, not anything that was usable. Very broad. Yeah, and very, very non relatable in a right. way. I talk to young people and they're just and they're mad. They're mad. They're mad that they can't afford an apartment. They're mad mm-hmm. about not being able to work remotely. They're mad about a lot of stuff. That's yeah. some shit just seems unfair. I mean it's also really encouraging to see the next generation mad and, and willing to talk about it and willing I love to fight it. for it. I mean, you know, and just like bring it a little bit full circle like you know your parents were I'm sure mad about what was happening yeah. but to them when they couldn't express their love in the way they wanted to and you know to, to be raising children that are still you know fighting for things and passionate and about things as right? all we can expect they assume they're like we just assume we're gonna have access to birth control we yeah. assume we're gonna have access to health care that we need we assume yeah. anybody can marry anybody they want we're gonna right. assume that you get to walk down the street and not be mowed down by gunfire we assume yeah. you get to be safe we assume that the police should be protecting you we assume you know and so i think they have a lot of these assumptions 
mm-hmm. about what America should be, and I, yeah. I do. I, I, I think that's. I think it's really. I think it's really great. I think it's. Um, I think they're very smart about it in a yeah. in a way, and um, I'm much more worried about. I was on a panel once with a young woman, who told me, you know, she wasn't a feminist, and it was again, in retrospect, I would have handled it differently, because I would have just asked her questions. But, you know, clearly she was a feminist, right? Here she is working, demanding equal pay to her male colleague. You know, all these things that are feminism, yes. you know. And I, I really felt like people who really scare me are the ones who are uninterested, uninvolved, don't un- care about um, historical fights that they were involved in and right. that they benefited from eventually. You know, that's every single thing from her head to her Chanel-clad toes were, <laughs> was something that somebody fought for her to have access right. to. I'm like, you're sitting on a set that has 50% female anchors right. that exists because people demanded it. Yeah. Right? And they're getting paid the same as the guys. That exists because people demanded that shit. And there's actually some diversity here that exists because people demanded this shit mm-hmm. for you. That's why you get to be here today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I get mad too. Yeah. I mean, kids though, they do not like to be put in a box. They do not like to be labeled. Which also, I mean, there's there's beauty behind that, but also when someone, you know, it, it could be terrifying as well. Absolutely. Yeah, she was older, so she just right, okay. she was not that young <laughs> to be a kid. But yeah, you know, I I get that. It's it it's it is interesting. Like, how do you, for example, my older daughter Sophia, very white looking kid, looks exactly like her dad. People used to say to me when she was born, "Oh my God, it's like Brad butted her off his shoulder." <laughs> like, uh huh. That was a big baby. I was like, oh great. Cecilia, just like me, literally ethnic-looking yeah. kid. And their friends would be like, well, she's obviously diverse, but you're not. And Sophia would say, these people's grasp of genetics is terrible. Yeah. You know, and so, like, but it is an interesting question about, like, what is identity? How do you sure. see yourself? What do you want to call yourself? That ethnic-looking kid absolutely would not... Um, talk about race in any of her college applications. Interesting. I don't know why. Now for a quick break. When we come back, we continue this conversation on race, talking about the issue of Black missing men and women in this country, whose cases often don't get the same attention from law enforcement and the media as their white counterparts. Okay, be right back. And we're back with more Dinners on Me. There are all these black women, and men too, but mostly women, who disappear. And, you know, the law enforcement's not really looking for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, often people in the neighborhood don't even know that, like, mm-hmm. someone disappeared from this location right here. And the media has no interest in talking about them. One woman was comparing her own niece who disappeared, beautiful young black woman, to... A very famous uh, story about the young woman who disappeared in Aruba, Natalie Holloway. And she's like, they're exactly the same. Same age, beautiful girls. Like, what is the difference? And here is the difference. The difference is my niece is black and this girl is not. And and it was a wonderful walkthrough of, like, Mm -hmm. the the Americans who are getting on planes to go to Aruba to look for this young woman. The family pleading for help. I mean, uh, amazing Amazing, but everybody should have that. Right. Really, the story kind of got legs when that young woman disappeared, and I guess her, her boyfriend was implicated in her killing. Remember, they were in a van together with Gabby Petito, and one of the reasons that all of this really started for this project for us was that 
they kept finding bodies who were not Gabby. And people were like, who is this person that's missing? Like, right. we didn't even know they were missing. And now right. the police have found their, their body. And I think the dad, who was so devastated by the, his own daughters, you know, was missing. And he literally took to the media to say, like, there are other people missing. Pay attention. Can you imagine? Yeah. In the lowest moment of your life, to be able to say, you know, there are other people missing as well, and you should focus on them. It was remarkable. It was an incredibly he, empathetic, empathetic moment that I, I was shocked to, to witness when that when I saw that. It's right. Um, I mean, very moving, and just the, the amount of empathy that he had. I um, couldn't do it. I tell you how much he related to other parents who were going through right? this. Right, amazing, too. I mean, amazing. He just—they were an amazing family. Uh, I'm so glad you came to have a meal with Thank me. Thank you so much. This is such a great place. I would I absolutely come back. I'm absolutely coming back here too. Next time on Dinners on Me, Isaac Mizrahi. We'll get into growing up gay in a conservative religious community, hitting it big in the late 80s, and sending models like Cindy Crawford and Naomi Campbell down the runway. Oh, and he schools me on the proper way to eat at croissant. That's croissant. And if you don't want to wait until next week to listen, you can download that episode right now by subscribing to Dinners on Me Plus. As a subscriber, you not only get access to new episodes one week early, you'll also be able to listen to them completely ad-free. Just click Try Free at the top of the Dinners on Me show page on Apple Podcasts to start your free trial today. Dinners on Me is a production of Neon Hum Media, Sony Music Entertainment, and A Kid Named Beckett Productions. It's hosted by yours truly. It's executive produced by me and Jonathan Hirsch. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Chloe Chobel is our associate producer. Sam Baer engineered this episode. Hans Dale Shee composed our theme music. Our head of production is Sammy Allison. Special thanks to Alexis Martinez and Justin Makita. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson. Join me next week. 